Please join with me as we uh, pray, as we come to hear God's word and hear it uh, impressed on our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you alone have the words of eternal life, and we come to you as needy and hungry people. Please speak to us, give us clear heads, soft hearts, um, that we might hear your word and respond in repentance and faith. Uh, We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, So this is the book of Ezra. I'm going to read chapter 1, which of the two chapters that Steve mentioned is the easier of the two chapters to read. Uh, So that's really good. But if you've got a Bible open to you, the Church Bibles, this is on page 374. It's not a very long chapter. Ezra chapter 1, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. If you're trying to find it in your Bibles, it's in that order after Chronicles. Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbours assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29, gold bowls, 30, matching silver bowls, 410, other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Sheshbazar brought brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. I was enjoying that. I was hoping it'd keep going. Um, don't you think we all have times when we kind of second-guess ourselves as Christians? I remember standing in front of an RI class and thinking, do I really believe that? And sometimes it's more serious than that, isn't it? You kind of really have these deep, concerning questions. Or maybe you're just sitting back looking at your parents thinking, what on earth do they see in this Christian stuff? I really suspect we all have times when we wonder why anyone would live for God. I mean, life just gets too busy 
to fit God into it. Or maybe it feels like people that don't worry about God are just doing fine without him. And so why is it that we busy ourselves with Sunday mornings at church and growth group during the week? Maybe you start wondering, is it worth living for God? I'm sure we all have times, maybe prolonged times, maybe short times, where we think in this way. And so I think this book of the Old Testament, this book of Ezra, speaks into a situation maybe a little bit like that, where people are wondering what God's plan is, wondering why you would give up everything to do what God wants. So God's people, the Israelites, they were living in the Persian kingdom that you've been hearing about in the book of Esther. If you do a bit of a Google, you'll see that. It's a real part of the world. God's people were living in that part of the world, in the Persian kingdom, a long way from their home, Jerusalem. Jerusalem was at that point devastated, maybe a bit like Ukraine at the moment in places, just levelled. The, the people of Israel were, were taken away into exile with this tiny remnant left in the land and the rest living under the Persian kings. I'm sure they had moments when they wondered if it was worth continuing to live for God, to stand out as being someone who belongs to, the God of the, to our created God. Maybe it would be easier just to blend in, be part of the place. Um, after all, isn't that what the prophet Jeremiah told them to do? So if you look at Jeremiah, I've put some verses on the screen behind me. If you look at Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah wrote to the exiles in Babylon and he said, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. In other words, set yourselves up for a long stay in Babylon. Settle in. Get kind of comfortable. Go along for the ride. You're there for a long period. God sent his, um, the Israelites into exile as punishment for not living his way. And it's a punishment that will last a long period of time. And so Jeremiah the prophet speaks God's word into that situation and says, yeah, keep growing in number, but settle down there. And as you think about it, we're in a similar situation, aren't we? We're waiting on God to take the next action. We're waiting on Jesus to return. We're in this, this holding pattern, just waiting. And in the meantime, we're settling down, waiting. And we're getting busy a little bit like the Israelites were busy in Babylon, settling down and making ourselves at home. But then there's more to what the prophet Jeremiah said. So in this same letter, you just keep reading in chapter 29, you come to verse 10. He says, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And then you jump down to verse 12. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. Jump to verse 14. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. That's the word of God to these exiles saying, it will come to an end and you will call on me and I will bring you back to your land, to the land that I gave you. 
You'll be there for 70 years, it says, and if you try to you know, add the numbers up, you come up with different numbers. It's the idea of a whole generation of people, a long period of time. But God will bring them back to Jerusalem when they call on him. And if you think about it, if you had settled down into Babylon, if you had given your kids in marriage, if you had got a business that was making money, if your parents had made themselves at home, and if you had everything you needed to live a decent life, then why would you give that up when the 70 years is up? Why would you give up prosperity in Babylon to go back to the ruined wreck of Jerusalem, levelled, with nothing there, not even a temple? Why would you go back to the remains of a smashed-up city that your grandparents left? What would have to happen to make you want to return? Can you start to feel some connections here with where we're at, waiting for Jesus to return? What will have to happen in you for you to give up the comforts of this life to be obedient and put God first? To do what God wants, to you know, build a temple to God. That's what they go back to Jerusalem to do. What does it take for us to be moved in such a way that we would do that? Um, have a look at Ezra chapter 1 verse 5. I'm going to show you two verses in chapter 1 and Everything this morning will be based around those two verses, so it keeps it easy. Have a look at 1 verse 5. It says, Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Did you notice what happens? God moves their hearts. It's God doing a miracle in these people to make them want to go back to the wreck of Jerusalem and start rebuilding and to build a temple there once again. That's God's work, God performing a miracle in those people's hearts so that they would give up the comforts of Babylon under their Persian ruler to live for God back in Jerusalem. God brings his people home just like Jeremiah said he would do. God's faithful to his promises. God spoke through Jeremiah, his prophet, and said that a day would come when he would gather his people back in from the nations. He'd bring them back in. Um, it's not just Jeremiah that said that would happen. Before the people even went into Canaan the first time, back in Deuteronomy, God said, when you walk into this land, this is how you're supposed to live, but you're not going to do it. I'm going to throw you out, and then when you repent, I'll bring you back. And here Jeremiah says he's going to do that, and now in Ezra we see it happening. What we're seeing is the way that God works. He can be trusted. Ezra chapter 1 verse 5, you can trust God to do exactly what he promises. He will do it. So this part of God's word, not just here in chapter 1, but as you keep reading through Ezra, shows that God is unfailingly faithful. He does exactly what he says he will do. God acts so that he is faithful to his words that he has spoken. And so as we look at these chapters, we're being shown the unfailing faithfulness of God, and we ought to be motivated to trust God like these few people did. In chapter 1, verse 5, we ought to be encouraged to live for God too, to give up the comforts of life to be obedient to God and to live for him. So if you are at one of those points where you're thinking, I wonder why anyone would live for God, ponder Ezra chapter 1 verse 5. God keeps his words. Jesus will return. God does what he says he will do. 1 verse 5, Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. You'll notice there it's just two tribes, so Judah and Benjamin, um, who had 
possession in the land of Canaan, and then um, the Levites, the priests. Under King David and King Solomon, you'll remember the people of Israel hit a, a kind of a high point. They were in the land. They had their king over them. But then their kingdom was divided. The northern ten tribes went off to worship other gods. And God called on them to come back to him, and they didn't. And so God invited Assyria in to scatter his people, ten tribes of people scattered among the nations. You come to the New Testament, you see the little remnant of them in the Samaritans. In the meantime, God called on the two tribes in the south to come back to him, and they failed to, and so God sends Babylon in. Babylon conquers them and takes them away into exile. And here in Ezra, you can see we're up to the little yellow bit on that diagram, the people are starting to return. They're starting to come back. Um, But this return, it's not all in one go, it happens in, in parts. So here in chapter 1 of Ezra, it's the first return. All those whom God moved in, in the hearts of those two tribes, Judah and Benjamin and the Levites, they return. In Ezra chapter 6, you'll find there's a second return. And in, Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter chapter 1 what, that you're looking at in growth group, you'll see there is a third return. It's possible that Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one scroll or one book. And you'll see there on the diagram behind me, where Esther fits into this. Esther and Mordecai are two people that I presume didn't return from exile. Ezra was married to the ruler of Persia. Mordecai was a valuable person in his kingdom. So you'll see in chapter 2 there is a Mordecai that comes back. I think it's kind of like Presbyterian churches have two Steves. They've got a couple of Mordecais. I think that's what's happening. Um, We've finished that series of sermons in Esther, but as we look through Ezra, you're kind of getting the parallel stuff, the stuff that's happening alongside it. So Ezra chapter 1 verse 5 says that God did a miracle. He worked in the hearts of these few people from the tribes of Benjamin, Judah and Levi, caused them to be willing to return to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the temple to God. In Jerusalem. Chapter 2 then gives you a selective list of all those who returned. I think it's a selective list because it seems to zero in on the people who have been involved in the, in the workings of the temple. There may have been others not specifically mentioned. 2 verse 64 says there was 42,360 that returned. Sounds like a big number, but it's not huge. And we know as we read it on, it's only part of the people who were in exile. It's not a massive group of people. And then you look at 2 verse 62, so we're dipping into chapter 2 with chapter 1 verse 5 behind us. Dipping into chapter 2 verse 62, there were some who had not been able to find their passports and their birth certificates as they ran out of the house to return back to Jerusalem. They couldn't identify themselves as true Israelites, and yet they went anyway. So 2 verse 62, these searched for their family records but could not find them. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. Though they went back to Jerusalem, even when the temple was reconstructed, they couldn't serve in the temple until, if you look at verse 63, they had to wait for the Urim and the Thurim to be in place. I take it that means a time when they can inquire of the Lord and work out who's in, who's out. But just note that, though their people are returning, it's not the complete number. It's a little bit messy around the edges. We'll come back to that. So far what I've done is I've drawn your attention to one verse, Ezra chapter 1 verse 5, and the way God worked in the hearts of these people to cause them to want to return. Ezra 1 verse 5 shows God's unfailing faithfulness to his word. He says he's going to do something and he does it and he works in people's hearts to make it happen. Now have a look at the second verse and it's the first verse in the the passage, chapter 1 verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, which we've looked at, 
The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. Did you notice a similarity there in verse 1 with verse 5? Notice what God does. God works in the heart of this pagan king, Cyrus. He moves the heart of Cyrus. Here in in verse 1, God moved in the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a man who had no inkling of wanting to worship the creator God, the God of Israel. Um, This verse, I reckon, draws our attention to how supremely sovereign God is, that he can do something like that. In the heart of someone who's not even wanting to live for him, he can cause this man, this powerful man, to act to fulfill God's promises that he made through Jeremiah. Cyrus is acting out what God wants him to do. You see the sovereignty of God in that. Um, if you turn the pages of your Bible back to, to Chronicles, actually, if you look at chapter 1 of Ezra, I'll read 2 Chronicles um, from verse 22, the last bit of 2 Chronicles. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the words spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation through his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, notice how it's almost word for word with what we've got here in Ezra. Just one more little reminder that God's at work here. Um, The way our books in the Bible are ordered, we go from um, Genesis all the way through to Esther. It's kind of the chronological backbone of the Old Testament. And here's a reminder of that. Two Chronicles finishes just where Ezra picks up. God's working out his purposes. There's another little reminder from outside the Bible that this is how God works. Apparently they've dug up this Cyrus cylinder, an old piece of clay with writing on it. I think um, Reich's into this sort of thing. He showed us a photo the other day. Um, if, you read, if you can read what's on that, on that cylinder, it'll talk about this Cyrus, this ruler, this Persian king. It doesn't mention Jews or Israelites, but it talks about the way that Cyrus does this repatriation thing, sends people back to their homelands to build their, their um, uh, temples and um, sacred places. It may be that King Cyrus thought it would be good for him to have the Israelites worshipping their God in Jerusalem. It may be. Whatever's happening, God's at work so that his promises through Jeremiah, through Moses back in, in Deuteronomy, so that his promises are being fulfilled. Cyrus' decree, when you look at it here in Ezra chapter 1, includes instructions for the people to provide for the Israelites as they leave, to give them their riches, which it just, you know, it's another thing that sounds a lot like the exodus out of Egypt so many years before. When, when the people left Egypt, they asked the Pharaoh to let them go so they could worship their God, just like is going to happen here. The people will leave um, Persia, uh, Babylon, to go and rebuild the temple to worship God. And as the people of, um, of, of God left Exodus, they plundered the Egyptians. They took their wealth. You've got a bit of that happening here as people give their wealth to these exiles as they return. And there must have been a lot of treasure that changed hands because if you read ahead, if you look at chapter 2, verses 68 and 69, you'll see that the returnees, they gave their free will offering to this building of the temple And then if you look at your footnote, you'll see 500 kilograms of gold, 2.8 tonnes of silver. That is pretty impressive. That's a lot of wealth. Um, The wealth that would have been poured into the rebuilding of the temple also included the original precious objects that were in the temple. Andrew read that bit um, in chapter 1, verses 7 to 9. As part of his decree, Cyrus directed 
that these precious items that were stolen from the temple in Jerusalem under um, the Babylonians, that it would all be returned uh, to this temple as it's rebuilt. And as you look at that, you've got to marvel at the supreme sovereignty of our creator God that can make these things happen through a pagan king. He moved in the heart of Cyrus, 1 verse 1, worked in the heart of this pagan king in order to keep his word through Jeremiah. Cyrus issues his decree in order to see the temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. Maybe he thought he'd benefit from it some way, whatever, but here's God keeping his plans and promises, being unfailingly faithful to his word. So I've drawn your attention just to verse 1 and verse 5 in Ezra chapters 1 and 2. They show us two miracles, basically, two ways in which God worked. He moved in the heart of his people to cause them to want to return, and he moved in the heart of Cyrus to cause him to issue the decree to bring those people back. And together they show us that God is unfailingly faithful to his word. And they show us the supreme sovereignty of God. So if you are at a point where you're wondering why anyone would live for God, well, those two things ought to give you pause to, to think again. There's every reason to trust a God who keeps his word. Every reason to trust a God who's supremely sovereign like that. But there's an inkling, as I pointed out, there's an inkling in these verses that something's just not quite right, isn't there? Yes, the people are returning, but it's only part of the people. Yeah, the people are returning, but some of them don't even know if they belong. Yes, they're going to rebuild the temple, but as you read deeper into Ezra, you'll have the people who saw the old temple looking on thinking, that's nothing. It's just, you know, yes, God is keeping his promises, but there's got to be something more to this. There's this inkling that there's more to happen. But we know that God is faithful to his word. And these little things that show the imperfection of the return to Jerusalem give us hints that there's a bigger promise, a bigger way that God will fulfill his same promises. And as people who are New Testament Christians, we look back on this and we see in Jesus the beginning of another exodus. We see in Jesus the rebuilding of a new temple, not one with stones. We see the complete fulfilment of God's promises through Jesus. So in the gospel of Jesus, we see even more clearly God's unfailing faithfulness and his supreme sovereignty. As Jesus hung on a Roman cross, being put to death by the pathetic paranoia of a puppet, Pilate, as he hung on the cross dying, it was in response to the relentless jealousy of the Jewish leaders of the time. But as he died a criminal's death, God was fulfilling his promise to crush sin and to conquer death. And then on the third day, God raised Jesus to life again, exalting him over everything. And as you saw in Ephesians, God works in us now with that same power by which he worked to raise Jesus and exalt him, that same power that he used to cause, to move the hearts of his people to come back to Jerusalem, the same power that he used to work in the heart of Cyrus to cause him to act. God works in us now to cause us to want to live for him, to trust in his unfailing faithfulness and his supreme sovereignty. Um, rest assured that God moves in people that way. It's his spirit at work in us. So if you find yourself wondering if anyone would trust a God like our God, well, think again. Look at Ezra chapter 1. Look at Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 5, and you get this little look into the way that God works in people's hearts. So as we continue to work our way through Ezra next week and in the next few weeks, let's keep learning to live in a way that shows that we trust our powerful God and trust in his word. And this week, keep thinking about God's unfailing faithfulness and his supreme sovereignty. Would you pray with me?
Father, we thank you for the way that you've given us this part of the Bible. Thank you for the way that you've preserved it and kept it so that we can read it now. Lord, we pray that you would be at work in us through your word. Please help us to trust in your faithfulness. And Lord, please help us to submit to your sovereign power, we pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus. We thank you for real forgiveness and sure hope. And Lord, we pray that Jesus would return soon. And we pray in his name. Amen.